Well, again, good morning. It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you as always. And I think it's only right that not only before we begin a a message, but before we begin a whole new series, that we take some time to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are indeed risen. And that because you live, we have hope and new life. And Lord, as we come to this book, this book of Job, this book that often is challenging, many times confusing, filled with difficult conversations about things like pain and suffering, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest in the promises that you've given us. And so, Lord, as we start this new series, we ask that you would give us open minds to understand and open hearts to receive the word that you wish to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've had a couple people who, who knew this, this series was coming up ask me the question of all the books of the Bible, why the book of Job? I mean, if I were to ask, how many of you would say that you actually read through the book of Job in the past year? Wow, a couple of you. Good job, because there's a, there's a lot more of us who have not. And the reason why is because Job is a very, very challenging book. It's, it's one of the hardest, actually, to work through in all of Scripture, and it's not one of these ones that we often hear preached on. And yet the reason why we chose this book, the reason why we decided to preach on this book, is because every so often as a church, we do something called an Ask Anything weekend. And on the Ask Anything weekends, what we end up doing is we usually take questions from the audience. And, there's, and, and the question of, of suffering and pain is one that always seems to come up. Every single time we do an Ask Anything weekend, I will be sorting through the cards, and sure enough, there's at least one question about pain and suffering. At least one person will ask something that goes, a question that goes something like this, why did this happen? Am I being punished? And where is God in the midst of all of this? You see, that, that's the challenge that suffering presents. It's a universal question. It's a, it's a, it's a question and, and a, a challenge that comes against all of us at some point. And the reason why I think it's something that, that we always wrestle with is because every time we encounter pain and suffering, whether it's the loss of a loved one or as we struggle with a disease, maybe we lose a job or we find our closest relationships are, are falling apart around us, is that the pain and suffering threatens to overwhelm. It, it threatens to kind of overcome even the most resolute heart and mind. And yet, if you look at what people have said about pain and suffering down through the ages, there's also something interesting about, about the difference that pain and suffering can make in the human life. In fact, recently I came across this wonderful quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her book on death. Uh, her book is called Death, the Final Stage of Growth. This is what she writes about pain and suffering. I find this fascinating. She says, the most beautiful people are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. 
You see, on the one hand, suffering is something that we would prefer to avoid because of the dangers that it presents, because of the way that it can threaten, overwhelm us. And yet people also recognize that, that how you approach suffering can be the difference between whether you're overwhelmed or whether you grow. That actually when we approach pain and suffering with a posture of wisdom, it actually enables us to become deeply rooted people. And the question that I, that, that I want to ask and the question that really this whole series is wrestling with is how do we become those type of people? Those type of people that when the waters rage around us, we are solid. Our roots go deep. We become the kind of people that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is talking about. People who have deep wells of compassion, deep reserves of perseverance, deep wisdom and strength in the face of life's greatest challenges. How do we become those, kind, uh, those kinds of people? And that really is the reason that we need to study the book of Job. Because it's in the book of Job that we learn how to do that. Job is rightly included in the scriptures with the rest of the wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes. And the reason why the book of Job is included there is because many people reading this book down through the ages have found that Job helps us to understand how we approach suffering with wisdom. In fact, the great German reformer Martin Luther had this to say about this book. He said, the language of this book is more vigorous and splendid than that of any other book in all the scriptures. Likewise, best-selling author and speaker Timothy Keller says this about Job. He says, there is no book of the Bible or piece of literature in the whole world that addresses the great why question of suffering with the intellectual and philosophical integrity and deftness, the emotional and dramatic realism, and the spiritual wisdom of the book of Job. And so we want to take some time to study this book together, to understand how we face pain and suffering with wisdom. And so to help us do that, I want you to go ahead and uh, pick up your Bibles and open up to the book of Job. Uh, we are going to start uh, right in the beginning, Job chapter 1. And the book of Job is going to come, as I said, it's, it's right with the wisdom literature, so it appears right before the book of Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Job chapter 1. And I want to set the scene a little bit, because we didn't, ex we didn't read the first five verses of this book. But in the first five book, uh, verses of Job, we learn a little bit about its central character, the man whose name is the title of this book. We learn that Job is a, uh, a blameless and upright man, that he feared God and shunned evil. So what we learn first and foremost is that Job is a righteous man. Now, it doesn't mean that he was a perfect man. It doesn't mean that he was a sinless man. But what it means is that he feared God. He worshiped God. He looks to God as his hope and his strength in all of life's seasons. That he did his very best to shun evil and walk according to the ways of the Lord. But more than this, we learn that Job is also an incredibly wealthy man. First and foremost, he's wealthy in terms of family. See, back in those days, family was everything. And we learned that Job had seven sons and three daughters. That he had many children. But on top of this, he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And had a large number of servants. And then the end of verse 5 says this, He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. 
You see, in ancient cultures, your wealth was measured not in terms of how much gold and silver you had, but how many animals you owned and what kind of property you possessed. And what we see is that Job is a fabulously wealthy individual. So wealthy, so powerful that he's called one of the greatest people of, uh, of the East. Now, many people have tried to, to, to date Job. They're like, well, when did this story happen? And, and the interesting thing about Job is that the language in Job, the, the, the type of Hebrew that's used to tell the story, is a very, very ancient uh, form of the language. And in fact, many Bible scholars believe that Job was either a precursor to Abraham or even a contemporary of Abraham. That's how old this story is. So before Moses, before Sinai, before any of the other you know, books of the Old Testament were being written, Job was living out his story. He was living out his life. We encounter this great man, one of the greatest among the peoples of the East. But then in verse 6, uh, the, the setting uh, goes a little bit further. It kind of zooms out for a moment and moves to another locale, and that is actually the heavenly throne room. It says in verse 6, On the day that the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. We suddenly find ourselves no longer looking at Job and his family living in the east, but now we start to look down on this story from a heavenly perspective. We find that God is holding court. That the angels, that the sons of God have presented themselves to him. And it's here that we start to understand why this story has been written. Because it's here that we understand the conflict that is actually going to run through the rest of the story. You see, God is on his throne. His angels have presented themselves before him. And it says that Satan, though the word literally means the accuser, appears with them. And God asks him a question. He says, so where have you come from? And Satan answers the Lord. He says, from roaming throughout the earth, from going back and forth on it. And the Lord said, ah, well... From, uh, then you must have considered my servant Job. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, the reason why I think we're given this glimpse behind the scenes is because the rest of the book of Job is going to follow Job as all of his wealth is suddenly stripped away, as he suddenly finds himself in the midst of pain and suffering. And what's interesting is Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us what's going on behind the scenes, but Job actually is not privy to what we're reading. He doesn't actually know what's taking place. And, and so the first lesson in the book of Job is, is really more a lesson for the readers, that when we encounter pain and suffering, when we encounter, encounter conflict, what we need to recognize is that there's actually a battle taking place behind the scenes, a battle that, that, that uh, many of us are often unaware of. That's the first lesson of the book of Job. You see, the, the, the trials that Job is about to face are not random events. What we find is that actually it is a showdown between God and the accuser. That it is a showdown between God and Satan that finds Job, a man of God, trapped right in the middle. And to approach pain and suffering with wisdom is to recognize that there are spiritual realities in this world that are often at play in ways that we don't fully understand. 
that in fact, if you go to the book of Romans, one of the things that Romans tells us is that all of creation is suffering under the weight of sin, that all of creation is basically subject to this spiritual condition where we find ourselves in conflict between the forces of good and evil. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6 also says that uh, Paul writing to that church says we need to remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Job is showing us that there is a conflict taking place, a conflict for our souls. And what's interesting is the basis on which the devil draws up this fight. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then Satan says this, so does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his, his, ha- and, and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, if you stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. You see, the tactic of the devil, the tactic of the accuser, is basically to go straight at our faith. He says, why does Job even believe in you anyways? The only reason he believes in you is because you've allowed him to prosper. You've protected him from pain and suffering. You've watched over him. You've not allowed a single thing to harm him. But I'll tell you what, I bet you that if you were to take away everything good in his life, he would curse you to your face. You see, that's what the devil loves to do. He loves to go right at the heart of faith. And what he's asserting here is that there is no such thing as faith. That ultimately, the only reason people believe in God is because of the good things that God gives them. And that if those things were to be stripped away, if those things were to be taken away, then we would have no reason to praise God. That we, like Job, would just curse him to his face. That's what Satan basically says. He says, if you take away Job's stuff, he's going to curse you. Now, I said at the beginning of this service that this is a very, very contemporary book. That although this scene may strike us as odd, I think that actually the devil is on to something. And that is that many people in our world today believe in God just so long as belief in God is convenient. There's something true to what he's asserting here. In fact, I see it most often in what I would like to call the blessed movement. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this hashtag going around social media. Usually it's posted with a picture of something going extremely well that beautifully curated picture of your family doing awesome. Love my family, hashtag blessed. People often talk about blessed, uh, being blessed. I mean, I, I've spent many times when I've asked people, so how are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm so blessed. I'm just like, really, t- tell me what's going on. It's just like, oh, my family's doing great. Work is awesome. Kids are excelling at school. I'm healthy. Wife's healthy. Whole family is healthy. We're so blessed. That for many people, what it means to be blessed is when God gives us good stuff. We're blessed when things are going okay. So yeah, praise God, things are so so good. I'm so blessed. But here's a question: Would we would we would we go to hashtag blessed when things are not going well? How many of us would say that? 
I hear lots of people nowadays, people who don't even go to church, talking about how blessed they are when things are going well. But the moment things go bad, I no longer hear the word blessed anymore. I wonder why. Why is it that we, are only, that we only feel blessed when things are going good? I think it's because for most of us, we actually operate according to the way the devil lays out here. He says, yeah, as long as things are going well, of course people are going to praise God. Of course they're comfortable with words like blessing when things are going well. But if you take that stuff away, there's nothing for them to be blessed about. There's nothing for them to be happy about. They'll curse you to your face. They'll turn their back on you. They'll stop acknowledging you. They'll walk away. That's really his challenge. That's really his dare. And I think that this is incredibly contemporary for us as Americans because what I find interesting is that the two tests that Job then faces are tests that strike at the heart of his wealth and the heart of his health. We go on and we say, you know, if you, uh, the devil says, yeah, if you take away all of his wealth, if you take away, all of it, if you take away his family, he's going to curse you to your faith, uh, face. And so God says, all right, well, let's see. I think it's because God knows something about Job. But God says, all right, let's see. And what we find is that everything that made Job wealthy is actually taken away. His family, his children are gone. His flocks and herds are gone. His house has been destroyed. He has nothing. But then if we read on a little bit further in Job chapter 2, the devil comes back and, and, and uh, God says, See, my, my servant Job has been faithful. He hasn't cursed me to my face. You struck him, but he remains firm. And the devil kind of responds back. He says, Well, skin for skin. The man will give all that he has for his own life, but I bet you if you stretch out your hand and strike his, fle- his flesh and bones, that he will surely curse you to your face. So he says, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's lost everything, but he still has his health. But if he loses that, I bet you he's going to curse you. And sure enough, God says, all right, you're not allowed to take his life, but even his body is in your hands. And so then we find that Job is now struck with disease, a very, very painful disease. I find it interesting that this book, I think, strikes at the heart of what I would call our American idolatries. The ways in which we praise God when everything is going fine with our health and with our wealth. In fact, one of the things that kind of drove me nuts is how this kind of thinking uh, infects even the church. You see, I I had uh, one of my summer jobs as I used to work at uh, family Christian bookstores. This was the summer after I graduated from college and before I then started college ministry. And uh, working at the front desk was always an interesting uh, moment, but one of the things that drove me nuts is facing the front desk was always the top five books that are selling within Christian literature, Uh, top five uh, Christian bestsellers. And you want to know what was on the number one bestseller uh, shelf for pretty much the entire summer that I was working there? Was Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. Joel Osteen is the pastor of the largest church in North America. But at the very center of his theology is this idea that if you just believe God enough, he is going to give you health and wealth. That primarily God's job is to hashtag bless you. And that if things are going well, then it must be something is wrong with your faith. If you listen carefully to Joel Osteen's preaching, that's essentially his message. And what the devil is saying here is he's saying, but if you take those things away... Nobody's going to believe in you anymore. Job is faced with a test of health and wealth. 
And what's interesting is that his wife actually seems to take the devil's side. Because as we go into Job chapter 2, now Job has lost everything, even his health is failing. She comes to him and she speaks these words, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. You have no reason to thank him. You have no reason to bless his name. You have no reason to hold fast to your faith. Everything that was good has been robbed from you. The question is, is when life is not going well, does that mean that we are no longer blessed? Does that mean that God doesn't care about us? That's really the dilemma that Job, this man of faith, uh, this man of faith now faces. But what I love about what Job says to her, his response, the reason why we're studying this book is because of, of these words. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. What I find fascinating is Job doesn't say you're wicked. He doesn't say, get out of here, you sinner. He says, you're, you're talking like a foolish person. Because Job knows something that she seems to have missed. He knows that it's foolish to tie God's presence and God's love to material things. Job is a man of deep wisdom even in the midst of his suffering. Because he says it's a foolish thing to think that your material wealth is a sign of how much God loves you. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, Job believes deep down that at the end of the day, just because his life is not going well does not mean that God is not present. Job's faith is a rock-solid faith because he believes even in this moment when he doesn't understand why things are happening the way that they're happening does not mean that God is not in control. In fact, if we look a little bit early on in Job chapter 1, verse 21, I love what he says. It says that when he hears all of this bad news, he gets up, tears his robe, and shaves his head, but then falls to the ground in worship. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. See, Job has not seen what we've seen. He's not seen the battle that's taking place behind the curtain. And yet Job does understand the one most important thing is that God is always in control. That even when things don't seem to be going well, it does not mean that God is not up to something, that God is not at work. Furthermore, the reason why Job knows this, the reason why he believes this, is something that we often miss in our English translations. That when Job praises God, when he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, what he's using there is the intimate name of God. He uses the name Yahweh. This is the name that God later gives to Moses when Moses says, so I need to go back and, and free my people from slavery in Egypt, but what if they ask me who sent you, which, which God sent you? He says, you tell them that Yahweh sent you. Yahweh means I am that I am, but it can also be translated, I will be who I will be. And Job knows something about this God. Not only does he know his intimate name, but he knows that God is a God of purposes beyond what we can fathom. That God will be who he will be. That he will often work in ways that, are, uh, that may initially seem strange to us. Ways that will seem mysterious to us. Ways that we may not entirely be able to wrap our heads around. But it does not mean he's not still there. 
That even in the midst of suffering, Yahweh is present. I will be who I will be. I am that I am. And it's to this God whose name that he knows that Job cries out. Just because he doesn't understand the purposes in the moment, he clings to the God of promise. Because somehow, some way he knows that God is able to work all things for the good of those who love him. Job is in the midst of the whirlwind. He doesn't quite see the end of the storm, but even there he remains rock solid because he knows the character of God. He knows that God is able to bring good even out of suffering. That even in the midst of darkness, God is not absent. And this is something that honestly, we know too. It's something that we actually celebrated on Easter Sunday. The fact that what may initially seem terrible, that which may initially seem evil and wicked and senseless, can somehow in the hands of a good and faithful God bring forth triumph and new life. On Good Friday, I'm sure that there were many of Jesus' disciples who watching as their innocent master was arrested, beaten, falsely accused and executed by wicked people who looked at that scene and said, this just seems pointless. Where is God in the midst of this? This is supposed to be his anointed one. This is, this is an innocent man who's done absolutely nothing. How could God allow this to happen? And yet on Easter Sunday, on the other side of the storm, Jesus' tomb was empty. That the stone was rolled away and he rose again to new life. In fact, I love how the Apostle Peter puts it in Acts chapter 2. In his very first sermon to the people in Jerusalem, he says this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. See, Peter says what, what the enemy meant for evil, God has transformed for good. That when the devil comes against us with accusations and strikes even what we have, even our very bodies with, with pain and with suffering, God is able to take even that and do something amazing through it. But often we only see that in hindsight. Often we only see that when we look back at the story. And Peter says, look, Jesus was handed over with God's, by God's plan and foreknowledge. But through it, he brought salvation for everyone. God took a cross, an instrument of humiliation and torture and death, and made it the sign of life for people around the world. But in the moment, it often doesn't seem like that. 
Which is why, again, Job's response is so important and so telling in this opening chapter. His first instinct is to cling to the God that he knows is faithful through all of life's seasons, the good times and the bad. It's from Job's own lips that we get those words, I know that my Redeemer lives. That even in the midst of his pain and suffering, he says, I know God is not absent. That God has purposes. I don't fully understand them. In fact, in the rest of the book of Job, he asks God, he says, what are your purposes? Help me to see and understand. But never once does he charge God with wrongdoing. In all things, he clings to him and goes to him because he knows that God alone is the one who can carry him through his suffering and that he will be faithful to the very, very end. That's part of the reason why we're taking the rest of the series to look at this book. Because we're going to see the various ways in which God does ultimately provide for Job. We're going to see the various ways that Job addresses uh, pain and suffering with wisdom and with rock-solid faith. But it begins here, first and foremost, knowing who our intimate God is. The one who is able to carry us through all of life's seasons. That even when it seems like he is absent, we can know that God is at work, that he will bring his purposes forward, that our story is not done, it's just getting started. And just like Job's life, there is so much more yet to be written. So I invite you to continue with us as we take a look at this story together. But this morning I want to rest in knowing that God is present And so it's with that in mind, I want to close in a word of prayer. Lord, as we begin this journey, I pray that we would know as Job did that even though life's circumstances seem to be dark and overwhelming, it does not mean that you are not not present with us. You are with us, Lord. You are our God. You are Yahweh, the one who will be who he will be. And so, Lord, help us to trust you even if we don't fully see your purposes. And to know that because of Jesus Christ, because our Redeemer lives, you can work for the good for those who love you in every circumstance. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.